Please join me as we pray. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever and ever and ever. And so it's on your word we stand this morning, O God. We stand on it for our hope and for our confidence. And so by the power of your Holy Spirit, build us up as we stand on your everlasting word. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's so good to be here with you this morning as we study God's word. And I want to say thank you for so many who have been praying for our family as we welcomed our fourth child into our family just about a month ago. And so we are extremely grateful to the Lord. Last week, Pastor Stringer looked at 1 Peter verses 1 through 12 of chapter 1. And what he was doing there was unfolding for us how wonderful and how incredibly blessed we are by God. You have been born again to a living hope, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, which is amazing. And yet, Peter's listeners might be asking, that's great that that's coming in the future, but what does that have to do with how we live right now in the midst of trial and suffering? And so please turn with me in your Bibles to our passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 and 25. And let's stand as we read God's Word. First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your hope and faith are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is God's word. By now you were all aware that the Supreme Court of the United States on Friday in a 5-4 decision has effectively made so-called same-sex marriage legal in all 50 states. This is a landmark decision in our land. Life as we know it has changed in some ways. We live in a deeply divided 
country. Even now, as we worship and as we sing songs, hundreds and thousands of people are headed on trains to downtown Chicago to take part in a pride parade. And likewise, there are hundreds and thousands of Christians like us gathered gathered in churches weeping over this type of legislation. This begins a difficult road for those who believe that marriage is ordained by God. It's written into Genesis and throughout the scriptures that marriage is between a man and a woman, recognized by God. This means life will get hard for Christian businesses, for individuals, for 501c3s and ministries that hold to the biblical definition of marriage, and for the university across the street, and many like it. How are we to respond in the midst of this type of decision? What do we do from here as Christians? Perhaps we're asking questions like this. How could God let this happen? Or what happens next? What changes next? Or what will this mean for churches like ours and for Christians like us and for businesses owned by many of you? Or perhaps you're feeling a number of different feelings. Sadness, resignation, frustration, Anger, confusion, and discouragement. And there's many things we can say about this, and we will say some of those things later. And yet, by God's providence, we come to a timely passage in his word that gives us our marching orders. Peter is writing to a people who are discouraged and confused in the midst of their setting. They are living on the outskirts of society, not the cultural elites in the nation of Rome. And they're saying, that's great that we have a future inheritance, but what does that mean for us now when we face trial and suffering and persecution? And what Peter essentially says is this. In light of your future glory, that you've been born again to a living hope, you have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, in light of all of that, in light of all that God's done, live lives that reflect that heavenly hope. That's what we need this morning. We need to live lives that reflect that heavenly hope. And so let's begin looking at our passage. Peter gives us four main commands, and we'll walk through each of those. Four imperatives come out of this text. And the first comes in verse 13. And he's answering the question, how does our future glory transform our present behavior? How does your future glory, that you're destined to be with God forever and ever, transform how you live tomorrow and on Monday, which is Monday, or this week or next month? How does that reality transform your life even now? And so look with me at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The main command there is set your hope on the grace that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, what is that, Peter? What's the hope? What's the grace that will be brought at the revelation of Christ? Well, it's your salvation, and it's in your inheritance, 
And yet, ultimately, it's Christ. When Christ returns, that's what you get. You get Jesus. And so to set your hope on the grace that will be brought, in essence, is to put your hope in Christ. It's faith. Put your faith in Christ. And he gives us two ways how we ought to do that. He says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. But even before we get there, when he says, set your hope, set your hope, often when we say the word hope, we use that to indicate uncertainty. I hope my wife makes my favorite dinner tonight, or I hope you're not falling asleep, but I don't reasonably know. And yet, when Peter's using the word hope, he's saying, no, 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 no. There's a confident expectation of the things that will come to pass. Set your hope there. Put your faith in that. Why should you have a confident expectation? Because Jesus Christ has died and risen again. And you've been born again to a living hope. And you have an inheritance. It's sure you can take that to the bank. It's sure you have a confident hope and expectation. And so he gives us two ways. Preparing your minds for action. This very literally means girding up the loins of your mind. Back in those days, the men wore long garments. And so they would pull back and grab the back of that garment and tuck it into their belt so that they could run or work in the fields. And so very literally, he's saying, get ready. Roll up your shirt sleeves. Get into your work clothes. Putting our hope and faith in God is not a passive activity. It takes preparation and discipline and self-control. We need to be ready. We need to set our hope there. You have to do it by girding up the loins of your mind, preparing your minds for action. And secondly, he says, sober-minded. We're not to be drunk or haphazard in this. And that would have been a very real temptation for Peter's listeners in the midst of suffering and persecution. And even for us, in the midst of a world that is increasingly hostile, it's easy just to say, I don't want to think about it anymore. I talked to someone yesterday night after I preached, and they said, it made me think about where I could move to. And perhaps you've had some of those same feelings and thoughts. And he's saying, no, no, no. Your goal isn't to move, because you can't run from sin. But God still reigns. And so be sober-minded. Don't drown out your sorrows in alcohol or TV, or entertainment, or even vacations. Get ready. Get ready. Roll up your shirt sleeves. It's going to get real. And God is still in control. And so, how does Christ transform your hope? How do we know if this is taking place? Let me ask a question for us. What do you look forward to most when you get a free moment? A spare time, and some of you are saying, I never get spare time. But when you do, what consumes your mind? What do you daydream about? What do you most look forward to? Some of us are most looking forward to our wedding day, or holding our grandbabies, or finally retiring, or buying that dream home, or taking that once-in-a-lifetime vacation. What do you most look forward to? And this passage is saying, it should be looking Jesus Face to face. That is where our hope should be. Is that we would behold the face of, your, of our Savior. Can you pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Not after I've done X or after hard legislation, but Lord, come now. 
we need you. What do you most look forward to? What do you aspire towards? What do you anticipate? Peter is calling his readers to treasure and cherish that which is most beautiful. That which is most to be treasured, which is Jesus himself. If you have any reasonable thought that you're going to retire someday, you're probably saving up for it now, or at least making some sort of plan. And in the same way, if we believe that we are going to spend eternity with our Savior, we we ought to begin living in such a way that reflects that reality. So does your status in Christ, does your heavenly hope result in setting your hope on Christ? Now look with me at our second command. And this is in 14 to 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The second command here is found in verse 15. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. You are to be holy like God. And this is contrasted with, in verse 14... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't act like you used to act. Don't act like an unbeliever. Don't act like someone who doesn't know and love God. You're not that way anymore. And throughout this, Peter is constantly grounding each of his imperatives, each of his commands in the reality that we have been changed. You are now obedient children. You are not an orphan any longer. I think it's a beautiful thing that so many here in our church adopt. And those who adopt older children know that there's an adjustment period. It's difficult. And there's many reasons for this, but one of the reasons is this child has known his whole life to live as an orphan. He's to fend for himself. The adults in his life come and go. And what Peter is saying, you're no longer orphans. You're not fending for yourself. You are obedient children. Stop foraging in the landfills for your food, but feast at the table of your God. You are his child. You are to sit at his table and to be fed by him. We are no longer orphans, so we can be holy like God is holy. You've been redeemed and ransomed and purchased. In chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verse 9, he says, you've been brought out of darkness into his marvelous light. That has happened for all those who put their hope and faith in Jesus. You've been brought out of the kingdom of darkness. You've been brought into the kingdom of light. So now, live that way. You don't live in the dark anymore, groping around as if you didn't know God. You know God. You dwell in his kingdom. And you're born again. And you're awaiting a future salvation and inheritance. And that is good news for us, brothers and sisters. We are no longer orphans. Peter grounds this command in citing Leviticus 19.2. You shall be holy, for I am holy. This comes in a section called the Holiness Code, where all of God's people are called to reflect God in his character. And in the same way, Peter is saying, Now God's people on this side of the cross, in the same way, are still called to reflect God's character and his purposes. So do we live as people who are set apart 
for God's purposes and for his glory in this world. I was talking with a friend many years ago, and I don't even remember who the friend was, but we were sharing about our background, and he was telling me where he grew up and how he grew up and where he was born, and I went to go on and share about myself. And so I said, my ethnic heritage is Chinese, but I spent all of my growing up years in Northern California. And he said, oh, I understand. And what he meant by that, and he, oh, he said, oh, you're just like us. And what he meant by that is underneath your Asian exterior, you're really just white inside, like a Twinkie or a banana, right? Yellow on the outside, white on the inside. Don't use that with your Asian friends, by the way. It won't go over well. And instinctively, I wanted to say, well, not quite. Hold on. There's ways that I was raised and values that I was brought up with that make me different. I'm not just like you. And the world is looking at us and saying, you spend your money just the same way we do. You climb the corporate ladder just the way we do. You run your business just like the way we do. You want your children to get into the good schools just like we do. You want to make money just like we do. You're just like us. You're no different. And do we instinctively, not only in our words but in our actions, say, hold on, not quite. We are people who are set apart by God for his purposes, to reflect him and his nature for his glory. Are we people who are set apart by God? Are we holy? Do we live lives that reflect that reality? If that's not the case, we need to begin living in such a way that reflects who we truly are. So does your status in Christ result in setting your hope in the future grace that's to come and growing in holiness? And now our third command in verses 17 to 21. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, Perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Do we conduct ourselves with fear? And he gives us two reasons for why we ought to do that. The first comes in the beginning of verse 17. It says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially. And what he's doing there is he gives us a condition of fact. He's saying, if, then you should conduct yourself with fear. But the if is a fact. You do call on him as father, because he's speaking to Christians here. And so he says, if you call on him as father, who judges impartially, then you ought to conduct yourselves with fear. What he's saying is, God is a judge. Every man will be called to account for his actions. God is not mocked. He sees every single one, every thought, every action. And so this is a warning. If that reality does not cause us to conduct ourselves with fear, I don't know what will. God will call everyone to account. Everyone. No exceptions. And yet, he gives us the great encouragement on the back end of this verse. In verse 18, he says, but knowing that you were ransomed from your feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers. You're not like that anymore. You don't do what you used to do. You're not a prisoner to what you used to be a prisoner to. You've been ransomed. You've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness, put into the kingdom of light. You've been ransomed. 
He's hearkening back to the Old Testament sacrificial system in Exodus and Leviticus and Isaiah and Psalms. And he's saying, you're fundamentally different now. And it's striking. He says, you've been ransomed, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. So conduct yourselves with fear. Don't trample on the blood of Christ. It's precious. And why is it important that we weren't ransomed with silver or gold? I was wrestling with this this morning. Why is it important that it's the precious blood of Christ? Well, I think it's this. If you were ransomed with gold, conceivably, Satan could find more gold and ransom you back. But if you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, that is beyond any cost. It is priceless. No comparison. Not even an ounce. All the gold in the world could not equal one drop of the precious blood of Christ then you're safe and sure. You've been ransomed by that blood. That should give you confidence. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning, if you don't know where you are with God, that can be yours. You can be ransomed by Christ out of darkness into his light to have hope and faith because of what Jesus has done. If you will believe in him, repent of your sins, and turn from your own ways. Trust in Jesus even this morning. You can be ransomed. And then look with me at verses 20 and 21, which I didn't read earlier. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. What he's doing here is he's lavishing it on even more. Look how incredibly blessed you are. In the passage Pastor Stringer looked at last week, he said that angels even long to look into the salvation that you have. And now he goes and says this. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, Jesus, but was made manifest in the last times. Why? For your sake, so that you could see him, who through him are believers in God, who raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory. Why? So that your faith and hope are in God. We stand in some of the most privileged place in redemptive history. We have seen the revelation of Christ in his scriptures. Old Testament prophets, they were longing to look into this. Angels themselves, even right now, can't understand it. We, we have the testimony of God's sure word. This is how blessed you are. We have been given so much. All of this was for you. For you. Look how incredibly blessed you are. That's why we should conduct ourselves with fear. Because God is graciously giving us all that we need to live in the manner befitting of who we are. God is working. Let me ask this diagnostic question to see whether we are conducting ourselves with fear. What's your first reaction when you see someone sinning? Heartbreak? Humility? Or is it outrage, judgment, condemnation? Just this last week, I heard of a very prominent pastor who resigned amid moral failure. And I found myself praying for him and for his family and for his church. And it was heartbreaking. But after that, I found myself praying for myself. And the reason for that is because I know I'm not beyond moral failure, nor are you nor any of us. None of us goes and gets married thinking we'll throw it away in 15 or 20 years with an affair. And yet, 
that happens again and again. And so, when we hear of others' sins, it should point us to examine ourselves. Do we conduct ourselves with fear and reverence, knowing that God both judges and yet we've been ransomed? We've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness. Sin no longer reigns in me or in you. So does your status in Christ result in setting our hope on Christ, a greater holiness and living in fear and reverence. Now turn with me to our final command in verse 22 to 25. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. The command here is to love one another earnestly. So the first three commands up to this point have been vertically oriented. Conduct yourselves with fear. Be holy. Set your hope on the grace that's to come. And now he turns and he says, now you have to love each other. Our relationship with God is not just something between us and God and to be vertical, but it's also to love one another. We are not to run off into the mountains with our Bibles and just do quiet times day in and day out, but we are to love each other and to let the scriptures and let these realities flavor how we care for each other. And then he gives us two reasons for this. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, you've obeyed the truth and thus purified your souls. What's that? That's faith. You've been born again. You've obeyed the truth, the obedience of truth. We looked at that in Romans as well. You're converted. And then he goes on and he says, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. He's saying the same thing. We ought to love one another earnestly because we have been born again. We are fundamentally different. God saved us so that we might care and love one another. What does that look like in your life? I don't know, but you know. Who are the people that you need to love earnestly from a pure heart? The people in your adult community, the people in your small group, the people on your neighborhood, the people you know just enough about here at church. Maybe it's the person next to you. How do you need to open up your life in order to love one another? In small groups, I often say we can't really do that generally on a Sunday morning, but another avenues and venues. We need to care for each other. We need to love one another. Where are you doing that in your life? How are we loving one another? I know a family who fled religious persecution and ended up here in Wheaton. And this is from halfway around the world. And their visas are expired. They have no green card. Their application for asylum has not been accepted. So he has no way to work. They just had a baby. And so they have been at the mercy of Christians here in this room. Food, housing, bouncing from house to house to house to now a condo. How can we earnestly love one another? You can probably go anywhere in the world today and say, show up and say, I'm a Christian. And someone will show you Christian hospitality and open up their home and give you all that they have. How are we doing that for others here and now? And now he turns to verse 24 and 25. 
All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. This is quoted from Isaiah 40. So actually turn with me there, because it's worth looking at. Isaiah 40. And it's really striking. Isaiah is writing to the Israelites who are on the margins, under the thumb of the superpower of Babylon. And they're questioning, they're discouraged and confused, and they're saying, is God going to fulfill his promises? Because it doesn't look like it. And this is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 40. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. God is giving a message. It's likely that Peter has in view all of 1 through 11 when he quotes just verse 6 and verse 8. And so what does he say? Look at verse 3 of Isaiah 40. He says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Does that ring a bell? That's the same verse that's quoted in all four Gospels. The prophecy of Isaiah was fulfilled in Christ that a Savior would come. Jesus came. Prepare the way of the Lord. Christ has come. And his point in quoting that is that the word of God stands. The Babylonian superpower fades away. It's like grass. And Jesus came. God's word stands. Yet look with me at verse 5. And it says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There will be a worldwide theophany where God will reveal his glory. So in the same way God's word stands for Isaiah's audience, and God's word stands for Peter's audience, God's word stands for us. God will come back. Jesus will return in the same way Jesus, in his first coming, fulfilled this prophecy. In his second coming, he will also fulfill this prophecy. All flesh will see him. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This is true. That's where our hope is. And so, this is good news for us, brothers and sisters. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So does your status in Christ result in setting our hope in future grace at what's to come? Does it result in greater holiness? Does it result in conducting ourselves with fear? And does it result in us earnestly loving one another? So how should we respond in light of the Supreme Court decision? What should we do or think or say? What we need to hear is this. We are to be people who are unafraid. We are unafraid. God's word remains forever. Jesus Christ is building his church. His kingdom will never end. Babylon fades away. You hardly know a thing about Babylon unless you're a church historian. It's a footnote in your textbook. Rome, you may know a little more. But Babylon and Rome and even America will fade away. And yet, 
The word of the Lord stands forever and ever. It will remain. God will build his church. His kingdom will never come to an end. God's kingdom will continue to grow and advance, and even the gates of hell cannot withstand it. We are people who have a sure hope, who are unafraid of the winds of our culture, because we stand firm, not on our culture's acceptance of us, but we stand on God's word. We are unafraid. His church will be built. Not ISIS, not any legislation, not any president, not any nine people who sit on our highest court cause us to cower. We are unafraid. Amen? Amen. And yet we need to be compassionate. We need to be compassionate. Our gay and our lesbian and our transgender neighbors and coworkers and perhaps friends, need the gospel even more now. Because the world has said, we approve of all that you do and all that you think. And so we need to be compassionate. We need to be people and a church that welcomes the broken and the hurting. And when the refugees of the sexual revolution realize that what we thought this would bring us, it hasn't brought and they're looking for answers, we have the answers in God's word. We have those answers. And so we need to be compassionate. We need to not run, but we need to listen. And we need to love. We don't compromise on truth, and yet we need to love and show them Jesus. All sinners' greatest need is Christ. Only Jesus can satisfy. Only Jesus can satisfy. And we need to be reminded that all flesh is like grass. Whether president, Supreme Court justice, nation, kingdom, it doesn't matter. All of it will fade away. Nothing can thwart or stop God's plan. Jesus reigns. Jesus sits on the throne at the right hand of the throne of his Father. And God reigns. He's made the world and he will see it through. And he's given you a great hope. You've been born again to a living hope, an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. We are unafraid, but we are compassionate. Why? Because we have the living words of life that Jesus Christ himself has given us. We are people who are to proclaim this good news far and wide and indiscriminately. In the same way it was proclaimed and preached to us, we are to proclaim it far and wide. Jesus Christ reigns. Nothing has changed. Romans 8.28 didn't magically disappear from our Bibles this week. God works all things together for good for those who love him or are called according to his purposes. And so our God reigns. Join me as we pray. Lord, we ask that you would let these truths sink deep into our hearts. We need to experience in a greater way this unshakable confidence that you speak of in your word. That we have our hope, not in what this world can offer, but in what Jesus Christ has done definitively at the cross by his blood. And so fill us with your spirit to go out and be the people in the hard places, to be compassionate and truth-filled. 
And we pray that you would do that for us and for our church so that you would receive all the glory and that your kingdom would continue to grow and expand for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.